Welcome to At Work in America, sponsored by Paychex. At Work in America digs in behind the headlines and trends to the stories of real people making a difference in the world of work. And now here are your hosts, Steve Bowes and Trish McFarland-Steed. Hi, everyone. This is Steve Bowes. Welcome to the At Work in America podcast on the HR Happy Hour Media Network. This episode of At Work in America is sponsored by Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. As the workplace continues to evolve, businesses are being forced to adapt and innovate to meet the challenge. Our fifth annual Workforce Trends study will help you understand this year's top business challenges and set your strategic priorities. Get the report. 2023 Priorities for Business Leaders, Trends, Insights, and Ideas for an Evolving Workplace to Learn the Challenges Facing Businesses Like Yours and How You Don't Have to Go It Alone. Visit paychecks.com slash A-W-I-A to check it out today. This week on the At Work in America show, to recognize World Autism Awareness Month, we are replaying a classic HR Happy Hour show from 2020 where we were joined by Tim Vogus. Deputy Director, Business Innovations for the Frist Center for Autism and Innovation at Vanderbilt University. On the show, we talked about how employers and HR leaders can better understand the needs of employees and candidates who are on the autism spectrum, how HR and talent management processes can be made more open and inclusive for people on the spectrum, and how HR leaders can begin to think more openly and expansively about this deep pool of talented people. This is a fantastic show and topic that is just as important and relevant today as it was when it was originally recorded. We hope you enjoy the show. Trish, we've got a super topic today, sort of semi-related to the TV uh, show you recommended, Atypical. Uh, Our guest today is Tim Vogus. He is the Brownlee O. Curry Jr. Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Leadership Development Program at the Vanderbilt Owen Graduate School of Management. He's also the Deputy Director of Business Innovations for the Frist Center for Autism and Innovation at Vanderbilt University. He has published widely in leading autism, health service, industrial relations, management, medical, and social work journals. More recently, he has begun studying how to make organizations more inclusive, especially for neurodivergent employees and the organizational practices and technologies that can help create and sustain meaningful employment for individuals on the autism spectrum. Tim, welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Steve and Trish. I'm excited to talk to you today. Tim, it's great can, I, to can, can, I, can I answer the question you asked at the top about things one is doing during COVID-19? <laughs> yeah, uh, so one thing that I want to highly recommend is uh, I'm a huge rap music, hip hop fan. And the thing that I've been really enjoying is D nice at D N I C E. He's a DJ. He's a founding member of boogie down productions. He had a real big hit rap record when I was like at the end of my high school career. And he's been doing these DJ parties from his house. And there have been upwards of a hundred thousand people showing up to listen wow. in. And it's like, uh, yeah, the Obama's both showed up, uh, Beyonce showed up, you know, like all these people and kind of commenting on it. So he is a big time DJ that's just been playing these and they're really fun. Uh, lots of kind of classic R&B and hip hop kind of thing. So it's just a real fun vibe. Uh, so I would recommend D nice. And if you want something that's a little bit more, uh, uh, that would also be responsible to be doing during uh, COVID-19. Sterling K. Brown, the actor, right, mm-hmm. who's on This mm-hmm. Is Us and was in Black Panther and among other things. Um, he has this video on YouTube that he did for Men's Health, which is his body weight-based workout. It's like this five-minute video, and he gives you his... Uh, his pyramid of, uh, he's a very fit guy, uh, his pyramid of things you can do just using your own body weight since we can't go to gyms and things like that. Oh, that's great. Um, and that, that's a really great workout too. I mean, it only, it's like a 20 minute workout and it's pretty intense, but it's, cool. but it's good. We need to, so, I need to remember Trish, when we write up this show is to, is to put the links to the things were our recommendations in, in the note. Writing yeah. them down. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So, Tim, great to have you. As we said, we read the bio, uh, but maybe we'll start with this. Maybe tell us just a little bit more about what you do, and maybe then we'll get into about the Frist Center for Autism and Innovation, because I'm 
not familiar with it directly, but I'm interested in it for sure. And I'd love to know more about that. Sure. So uh, I've been a professor at Vanderbilt since 2004. Prior to that, I got my PhD at University of Michigan. And my research really has been about mostly things that are more related to COVID-19 than they are to autism uh, mm. for, for most of my career. They've been, it's been about medical errors and how to make healthcare delivery safer. So I really focused on safety cultures and how those are built and sustained in hospitals and what role human resource practices plays in enabling those, what kind of things leaders can do to set organizations up for safer performance, and then how team members perform more or less mindfully in delivering kind of error-free performance. Uh, and then another thing that I've looked at related to that is, you know, as being mindful all the time is something that can be really demanding and taxing, you know, how can organizations infuse with more compassion uh, such that people can, you know, kind of sustain that em energy when they have to cope with difficult circumstances, as we're seeing now in abundance in healthcare delivery, you know, how do we help uh, people recover from that and get the support they need when experiencing trauma and things like that. But in all that work, uh, it opened me up to thinking about how do we get the most possible out of organizations? How do we make them maximally inclusive? An organization is mindful if it's compassionate. It's really recognizing and capitalizing on the full uniqueness of every individual that's a part of it. Um, so that is something that led me to having some interest in disability and also neurodiversity and organizations and how do you make the most of all the people who are inside your organization and think about pushing the boundaries and the limits of that. But there's also a real personal reason that I got into autism uh, research as well. So my son, Aiden, who's turning uh, 18 on April 6th, so very soon, uh, he, he was born with a rare genetic condition that's caused him to have multiple disabilities and kind of disorders, a lot of struggles with movement coordination, but also one of the things that uh, he experiences and is part of him is autism. And he's mostly non-verbal. Non um, so that's something that I've always been thinking about too. So we've spent a lot of time in the healthcare system. So that's part of my interest in why healthcare sure. organizations and then why disability and inclusion, because I want uh, a better world for him and anybody who's even remotely like him, uh, too. So th that's kind of my personal story around around these issues and why I've gotten into researching it. And the, what the Frist Center is doing is trying to bring people like me, as well as people from many other disciplines across Vanderbilt's campus together to think about what can we do collectively to create and sustain meaningful employment for people on the autism spectrum. Because okay. every year in the United States, 50,000 people, um, kids, graduate into, with, on the autism spectrum, graduate into kind of work age. And what we know is there's a huge cliff from the school setting where there are all kinds of services and where people have a pretty deep understanding of autism now uh, to the work world and the community where there's much less. And there's mm -hmm. much less support there. So a lot of times people fall off a cliff. So what we're trying to do with the first Frist Center is to bring people together to help navigate that kind of transition, but to open up the workplace for people on the autism spectrum. So it brings together people from computer science and engineering who are working on technologies like virtual interviewing systems or uh, ways of assessing people using kind of uh, specific tests and skill building kind of activities, be they virtual or in person, uh, to assess what are the unique competencies that people on the autism spectrum have. And then how can we help people uh, secure employment by helping people gain those kind of interview skills. And then we also do some things around, you know, one of the big barriers to people getting to work is, especially in a city like Nashville, which doesn't have a robust public transportation infrastructure, is driving. So okay. a couple of our engineers have developed the driving simulator that's specifically designed to help people on the autism spectrum learn to drive. Um, and then we do other things around kind of training and development where we partner with some other, other kind of support organizations, nonprofit organizations. And then my research, what, I, what I'm doing is bringing my work on organizational culture and mindfulness and all those types of things and saying, how can we apply that? To the, to the challenge of making organizations more inclusive. So I'm trying to do interventions in that kind of way and to help 
understand the experience, the lived experience of people on the autism spectrum in the workplace, because there are a lot of people on the spectrum in the workplace who may or may not be disclosing that they're, they're on the autism spectrum and to try to get a better firsthand uh, understanding of uh, what people are experiencing and how, you know, what are the conditions that enable success and what are the things that get in the way. So the Frist Center is really bringing all those folks together and then bringing together the Nashville community as well. So local employers, uh, you know, kind of support agencies, things like that. We're bringing it all together. So it's a it's researchers, but it's also community partners, employers, all working together to say, how do we, you know, uh, reduce the, the problem of un and underemployment, which is pretty astronomical for folks on the autism spectrum, where it's upwards of 80% people are wow. un or underemployed uh, on the spectrum. And that's with a lot of folks, you know, having college degrees, advanced degrees, things like that. And, and we at the Frist Center also walk the talk, our executive director, uh, speaking of somebody who has advanced degree, has a PhD in physics, uh, but he's on the, on the spectrum. And we have uh, another uh, person who's a, who's a Vanderbilt graduate who runs our media and communications who also on the spectrum. So we're not just, you know, saying, hey, other employers, you should do this. We're, we're trying to be an employer that, that lives uh, what we're trying to put out into the world. You know, I, it's fascinating. Um, like, the, I feel like, I feel like as someone who had worked in human resources and, you know, really, uh, Steve and I were talking before we, you know, we've been doing shows for several years on this topic, but I feel like there's so much I don't know, or that maybe our listeners yeah. don't know. You know, you mentioned um, on the first center, some of the things you're doing to help um, employers be prepared, right, for yeah. college graduates who are on the spectrum. So I have sort of two questions for you. The sure. first this may be a silly question, but do is it possible to be on the spectrum and not know it? Do do people know absolutely. that's on the spectrum? Because I'm thinking, well, absolutely, like, yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking of having been in HR. There, there. It feels like maybe you mentioned sometimes people know and they don't disclose. So I guess the first question is that, and then secondly, um, you know, I mentioned I'm watching that that show, and I was actually um, I haven't given it much thought as to what are universities doing to um, really make it easier for people who are on the spectrum to attend and get a degree. Cause I would imagine those very things are some of the things that employers could be doing as well. So maybe if you could mention a couple things Absolutely. that here at the university that you do to make it comfortable for students um, that might equate to what, what um, some of the employers listening could be doing as well. Yeah. So your first question about whether people could be undiagnosed and go through most of their lives undiagnosed, for sure. That happens all the time and they might not know. I mean, it might at some point make sense that, oh, I seem to be like this. This seems to describe me, you know, kind of autistic traits and things like that. But a lot of people, especially people in my age demographic, so I'm 45 and, you know, autism was not as common a diagnosis. And now uh, the most recent numbers that were just released, it's like one in 54 people is on the autism spectrum. Um, but the, you know, for a lot of folks, they don't know. And then there are other folks, like I, I mentioned and, and you reiterated, you know, about who are at work and have a diagnosis, but might feel the stigma mm-hmm. of, claim, you know, of revealing that diagnosis might, you know, might make people nervous, like, oh, what accommodations do they need? Are they, am I going to be at risk if they get fired for poor performance? You know, like it creates a set of conversations or expectations where people might interact with them in different ways that they don't, that they, that they're concerned about, you know? So I, so I think those categories of people, people who are in the workplace, not disclosing and know whether they have a formal diagnosis or a self-diagnose, and then people who just don't have a diagnosis but meet diagnostic criteria, right? Um, so yeah, those are big. Those, I think those are big blocks of people. I think as we move forward over time, and my son, who's you know about to turn eighteen, for his demographic, it's much more common to have the diagnosis. And one of the reasons why the most recent numbers are one in fifty-four is there's finally starting to be some parity in terms of. Uh, people of color getting diagnosed at the same rate as as white people, you know, so um, uh, which had that had always been lagging, you know, and 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 girls starting to get diagnosed uh, more frequently, you know, it had typically been, you know, overwhelmingly boys, but that's 
not an accurate thing, right? Like it's just, uh, there wasn't enough diagnosing going on and the diagnostic criteria weren't as clear enough or weren't as widely disseminated enough to kind of incorporate all those people. In terms of what colleges and universities are doing, there certainly are programs that are related to autism, but it usually bundles it up with other disabilities. Um, and oftentimes those programs might be kind of quasi-degree programs and things like that. So a lot of universities have, get these, uh, you know, so we have one at Vanderbilt called Next Steps, which is kind of like not, you're not getting an actual Vanderbilt degree, but you're on campus, you're engaged, you might be working on campus, things like that. So those are some of the things that those programs are doing. And there hasn't really been a systematic or rigorous study of all those programs. So they're emerging and it's kind of, you know, they're, they're great ideas as a parent of a kid with disability. Like I like that these opportunities exist, but I think in terms of kind of best practices that have disseminated and diffused, I don't, I'm not seeing much evidence for that. And in terms of what do we do for students on the autism spectrum at Vanderbilt and most universities, I think it's not altogether that much different than what people are getting when they ask for any accommodations, when they kind of, you know, in, in, invoke the ADA and kind of say, I need accommodations in this kind of way. Is it extra time? Is it notes in advance? Is it something, you know, is it some other kind of supports and helps, uh, you know, in the classroom or outside it? But I don't think there, I mean, there are certainly other kind of mental health supports and things like that, which are conditions that tend to co-occur with autism. Like for my son, epilepsy co-occurs with his diagnosis and that's and that's a pretty common one um but in terms of kind of like best practices there in some ways employers are out in front of universities so so schools are good right like primary middle and high school are good because you're getting occupational therapy speech therapy physical therapy which you know varies in its needs for for folks on the spectrum uh but pt but speech and ot is more typical you know, that people get. And then there are teachers who have had training in kind of neurodiversity and different kind of learning styles because neurodiversity, yes, it's autism, but it's also ADHD. It's also dyslexia. It's other kinds of things of different types of learning where people might just have more comfort with different kinds of styles and know maybe, okay, I need to make the instructions a little clearer. The contingency is a little bit more concrete for somebody who's on the spectrum who might uh, not be able to uh, process like an ambiguous request, like not know mm-hmm. the subtext that's implied, you know, facially or bodily when somebody's giving a task, like I need it broken down in a very specific way. And a teacher might have more familiarity doing with it, where I can tell you on, on behalf of university professors, even with those uh, kids on the spectrum, uh, aren't necessarily as good at that, right? They're like, no, the ambiguity is a challenge to you. You are supposed to, you're at Vanderbilt University. You're supposed to be a great thinker, you know, figure it out. Uh, which is not helpful. It's interesting. I'm, I'm Steve, I'm going to let you jump in because I know you probably have questions too, but so just one comment. Um, you mentioned neurodiversity training that the teachers undergo. I don't think yeah. I've ever thought about that from an HR perspective. That's probably mm-hmm. something that would be valuable yeah. for yeah. any of our audience to seek out, right? To go and yep. whether that's something you can find online or on YouTube or wherever. I'm yep. sure there's probably plenty of, yeah. of opportunities for free training. Yes. To, but to go yep. through some sort of neurodiversity training course as people who are hiring and maybe even one step further to have your your managers, your leaders going through this as well. Because, again, if there are probably yep. more undiagnosed or undisclosed people in your workplace, it would just make good sense to have some sort of training, um, not just for people on the spectrum, but like you mentioned, other um, right. neurological you know, issues that people might be facing and dealing with. Right. And it and one of the things that we're we're finding in our work and one of the things that you see from leading employers, like you talked to SAP a few years back, and they're certainly finding it that in their workplace, EY is another employer that, that finds this all over the place, is that when you start to design with neurodiversity in mind, so you break down feedback to make it more concrete, to make it closer linked to an actual episode that has recently occurred. It creates better conditions for learning, certainly for folks on the spectrum. But guess what? It creates better conditions for learning for everyone. So that's the idea of universal design, right? Like, so if you design with disability or with neurodiversity in mind, you're going to make a workplace that's better. Because I've had multiple times managers tell me, you know, yeah, you know, one of the things about neurodiversity working with autistic folks, it makes me a better manager. 
because I don't want to give unclear directions. But guess what? I realize when I'm giving unclear directions, when I give it to somebody who's on the spectrum, because they, one, they either tell me and like, that's not clear, you know, because directness can be sometimes uh, characteristic <laughs> of, of folks on the spectrum. And then, um, but also, I see where it breaks down. It's more likely to break down more quickly, right? Like, so I know I need to adjust and be more concrete. Yeah. Or we probably have a lot of leaders on the spectrum who may not realize it. Yes. And maybe they're giving feedback. Maybe that's part of the disconnect there too. So Right, exactly. They might be giving direct feedback and I'm trying to be helpful and very clear for you. And people feel like, oh, that's, you're bullying me, right? Like you're telling I me too many harsh those, words. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the things around stigma. So that's something I'm just starting to do a little research with, with a couple of folks, one at University of Tennessee and one at University of Houston, where we're looking for examples of autistic leaders. Because I think a lot of times the autism at work type programs and things like that are focused on specific types of roles and jobs that maybe match to the autistic talents or what's that's perceived to be. But I think there's a lot to be said for some of these kind of like seeing with clarity about systems and seeing how, you know, things work or don't noticing anomalies in a quicker kind of way that people uh, on the autism spectrum might that might set them up to be really good leaders. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and I'm sure there are, I mean, there are certainly, you know, rumors that certain leaders are on the spectrum, but in terms of like out and saying, I'm on the spectrum and I'm a leader of this organization, those are fewer. And I'm finding those harder to find. That's not because they aren't there. It's because right. people aren't disclosing. You don't want to make a, you know, I'm, I am not a clinical psychologist or a medical professional. <laughs> I'm not going to start making armchair, armchair diagnoses. Oh, that person's definitely on the spectrum, right? Yeah. Tim, I've got sort of a dumb question. You mentioned the ADA a couple of minutes ago. Yeah. And I'll, are these kinds of um, situations or, or people on the spectrum, are there protections under ADA for them or not? And if, if, if not, um, is that something... To, that, it's a that, recognized disability. So there are common, you know, so the kind of standard accommodations that would apply okay. to other disabilities would apply in this context as well, as far as I understand it. So I'm not a legal okay. expert, so don't go, uh, so <laughs> don't follow me. I'll I, I have a disclosure here. Do not use my, anything I say as legal advice. You're not I, clinically I said I'm not a medical professional. Not I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. I, I just, I just but, wondered yes. about that. Yeah. Yeah, because some of the things that you see, you know, so reasonable accommodations, right, uh, you know, are, and most of the accommodations that folks on the spectrum tend to need in terms of workplace environment adaptations are things that are pretty minor. So some of it's, uh, or sometimes around workplace environments like lighting. So fluorescent lights can be problematic, like mm. the, the hum of them and just kind of the, the light they give off and just there's too much, too distracting. Uh, sometimes needing, I'm, so I'm, when I'm talking to you, I'm worried by noise canceling headphones. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so those kind of things uh, can be helpful. Sometimes having an office with, that doesn't have like a big glass door in front, you know, because it's a too overwhelming or distracting kind of environment. So kind of a space to kind of focus on the work, you know, so these are relatively small adaptations, but those are some of the ones that I consistently hear from employers that they say make a big difference. Okay. Uh, just yeah, things no. that help the environment in minor kind of ways. But again, those are things that, uh, you know, that help me too. I have this annoying heater in my office that just like blows at a hundred decibels. And I, I I've, I've uh, managed to you know work on that by just stuffing paper into it. So I'm, so if you hear me dying in a fire in my office, it's because I couldn't handle the sound. Uh, yeah, that that's probably a different kind of violation in the workplace. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, that's right. Yeah, let, let cut that, please. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. I'm violating fire code. Don't let the dean uh, hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, Tim, what, one other kind of question I had too is so many more jobs and 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 roles within organizations are more reliant on technology than ever before, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's someone yep. in, in a manufacturing setting operating advanced technology, someone in even a distribution center who has to rely on, say, a handheld device to figure out what they're supposed to be doing next. And then, of course, like all the jobs that we have, the office jobs, the the marketing jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where advanced technologies or new technologies, right, have just become yep. so important and so crucial to the, to organizations, how they adapt and how people need to adapt in their roles. Aren't there some specific mm -hmm. examples where um, where folks who are on who go into workplaces who might be on the autism spectrum do they have, um, is it, it, 
I guess is the right way to ask this. Did, did they have the ability to adapt quickly, more or less quickly, or it's about the same as everybody else, right? To, to changes yeah. in sort of the technological so that, changes that are being wrought at work. It's a great question. So I think the kind of change and disruption to routine is something that is that can be characteristic as a as a challenge for people on the spectrum. So uh, that doesn't mean people can't handle change or things like that, but a, like unexpected change or unexpected disruption to mm-hmm. routine. Uh, but actually, engagement with technology is something that a lot of employers have seen is a is a real strength. Yeah. Like like thinking in that kind of technical manner. Now that's not the only job, and that's why I made that point a little bit earlier about people on the spectrum being well-suited to being leaders too. There are a whole range of jobs that we're just scratching the surface of. But some of the early leaders in autism at work and things like that uh, have been organizations that really have a technology emphasis. For example, like EY has their neurodiverse centers of excellence. And what they're doing in there is recruiting people on a spectrum who have kind of computer science and technical kinds of backgrounds doing cybersecurity kind of work. So the kind of engagement with technology and those kind of systems that have a logic to them, mm-hmm. um, you know, in other kind of financial service institutions like UBS and JP Morgan Chase, you know, with quality assurance, with noticing anomalies in big sets of data in our own uh, Frist Center for Autism and Innovation. So our director is a guy named Kayvon Stassen, who's an astrophysicist. Uh, and he had in his lab uh, a, st- a graduate student named Dan Berger, who's on the spectrum and developed this software to filter data in a way to be able to see, you know, to be able to find new planets and things like Mm. that. Right. Like, so, you know, being able to use technology in a way to see and visualize data in different kinds of ways. So there's real, some real evidence of technological strength, but you're right about the disruption to routine. So, Mm -hmm. but I would say, you know, there's, in my field, organizational behavior, human resource management, right? Uh, there's been a lot of writing about resistance to change. And what is that resistance to change really about in general for all of us? It's about unexpected disruptions and deviations that we don't know what how to make sense of and we don't know what to do with. So I think, you know, some of the things that might help kind of even that out in the workplace with change where it's kind of plan change and there's kind of some scripting around it. And here's how we're going to address it. Here's the timetable over which it's going to unfold and being a little bit more systematic about that. Well, it's necessary, I would say more so maybe a little bit for people on the spectrum. It's essential for all of us. Right. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah, I like that you you mentioned that before, just in terms of, you know, overall organizational design, that it, it really does benefit everyone to do it that way. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, obviously, we're now all in this time, you know, where we're working differently and, and maybe not doing some of those routines. Have you heard or, or any just, you know, um, stories around people who might be on the spectrum? How are they handling times like this, where it's such unknown at home, at work, um, right. is there anything that if you know someone on the spectrum that you can be doing to be helpful to them since they right. tend to prefer routine and now it seems like all of our routines are out the window right now? Right. Uh, you know, so one of the things that kind of uh, among my friends on the spectrum, uh, there's some gallows humor around. I've been social isolating for a long time. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I, think I made that joke. Yeah. Yeah. You're not the only one. The thing, yeah. One of the things that's characteristic of autism is sometimes the challenges of social uh, communication. So there's a real active uh uh, community on Twitter, for example, called hashtag actually autistic. Uh, that is a real nice community there where people are just able to engage and commune and using these kind of virtual forums. So there's a, I think there's a lot of community being built through those channels to kind of manage uh, the situation. You're right. There is disruption to routine, but there's also a rule and a structure to it too, in that stay in your home, do these things like oh, don't okay. you know wash your hands right like there is a structure to that too which okay. says you know do your work but do it in this kind of way in terms of but that isn't to say that there's no disruption there's no difficulty i mean when you take a social isolation to an extreme you know there are certainly consequences to that and you know autism co-occurs a lot of times with uh, with a kind of mental health anxiety depression kind of thing so that can certainly be amplified with these other kinds of conditions under these, under these circumstances. But I can, think, can you know, so having all these channels to connect virtually is helpful, you know, yeah. and being able to kind of retain some of the work rhythms and things like that. Tim, I had a question for the folks uh, who might be listening, who maybe, you know, are not, have not directly launched uh, 
programs yeah. or initiatives like some of the bigger companies you talked about, like the SAPs, yeah. the EYs, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe they're not in Tennessee and they're not maybe easily going to be able to connect with you and your organization at Frist. What might yeah. be some um, recommendations for HR or organizational leaders listening to the show who might want to That's do right. more or, or sort of begin to think about how we can become a little bit more inclusive uh, for folks on the spectrum? That's great. I think there, there are some really simple things organizations can do about how they think about how they hire people, you know, and what are they doing in their interview process? So for mm-hmm. example, one thing that can really be helpful and help help autistic individuals be much more successful in the course of interviews, give the questions related to the interview in advance. So people can actually prepare to what you want them to talk about, because uh, otherwise, what are you really rewarding? In those interviews, you're you're be, you're differentially benefiting people who have the social capital to know what the questions are going to be anyway, right? Because they have connections, so people who know that organization know how it works and things like that. And I told you one of the challenges for a lot of people on the spectrum is about social interaction and maybe maybe might be outside of some of those kind of networks in the first place. So if you want somebody to perform well on a task, you know, and there are questions that you need answers to. You know, provide those in advance and also ask quest- ask the right types of questions. So rethinking ones that are about wild hypotheticals or are very unstructured. Tell me a little bit about yourself. A terrible question to ask somebody on the spectrum. <laughs> it's not a great question to ask anybody, but uh, but it's really not. Or, would that, would those t- also t- fit into those, Tim, those brain teasers, like how many, you know, how long would it take you to wash every window in Seattle kinds of yep. things? Okay. Right, right, exactly. And, and the evidence on those kind of ones um, are, they don't really help generally anyway. You right. know, there's not really any kind of relation with task performance or things like that. And that's why you've even seen some of the people who, uh, some of the organizations that champion them early on, like Google move away from them, Right. you know, because it's a certain kind of approach and a certain kind of person who gravitates towards those kind of, those kind of problems and that kind of way of seeing the world too. And that's the other thing, uh, you know, related to hiring is about thinking about, the mindset of the organization and its leaders, no matter how small it is, you know, do you want to hire people that contribute something unique or do you want to hire people that are like everybody else who's already there? So if you want to hire, you know, if you're hiring for fit, which is, I think, something we've all been talking about, I've certainly written about, uh, you know, we may be excluding unintentionally. Because that fit might be, you know, if you're if you're neurodiverse, that means you think differently. Your brain is wired to think differently. Well, there's also a real opportunity with that. We don't have to just hire for cultural fit, but we can think about as uh, my pal Adam Grant talks about, you know, uh, hiring for cultural contribution. Right. You know, what is something unique that somebody can provide to the organization? So that's just even a mindset thing. So if somebody's giving a different answer and seeing things in a different kind of way. You know, can we see how that might actually be an advantage? Do we want to be innovative? You know, one of the real benefits of neurodiversity is getting different perspectives and thinking differently about how one doesn't work and how an organization operates. So you have to be willing to like when you hire for that, you have to let somebody engage and work in that kind of way. So I think some simple things around this. Uh, around, you know, structuring questions, you know, maybe giving people questions up front and kind of rethinking what am I trying to accomplish in getting somebody into my organization? Yeah. Do I want them to be a unique contributor? I want them to be like everybody else, you know, and do I, how do I want them to shine in the interview? You know, another thing would be substituting away from interview questions altogether, right? Like in some organizations engage more at like even the, the UIs and the SAPs, they have pretty elaborate hiring processes that the more small to medium business probably can't engage in, right? Like don't have time and capacity to do it. But even just like having people, you know, with work samples or maybe people engaging in a task for a day or an hour or doing something at the office, you know, more like kind of, you know, when I uh, interviewed for Ford Motor Company 454 years ago, uh, <laughs> you know, they had a big assessment center and like they took over the Dearborn Hyatt, which now is like a, just a shell of an empty organization, which shows you how old I am. And, uh, <laughs> but they brought us in there and you were doing actual tasks, right? Like that resembled the job you were interviewing for, you know, so it doesn't need to be that elaborate. We need to take over a hotel, but what are specific things that you want to know people can do? Can they bring samples from their prior work to show you they can do that? Are there, um, uh, you know, are there specific tasks they can engage in in your workplace to say, yep, this person knows how to do what we need them to do, right? Like, so I think that's a, 
uh, foundational bit is rethinking that hiring process in that kind of way. And as I just described to you, none of that takes, you know, a huge amount of cost to do that. It's just kind of rethinking. I think the same holds for socializing people to the workplace because the biggest challenge for people on the spectrum is about learning about an organization's culture, the unwritten rules. If you have challenges in social communication and reading emotional cues, um, you're going to have a tough time figuring out what people really mean in a culture. So what can you do? Take some of that implicit stuff, that tacit knowledge, and try to make it more explicit. So, you know, if you're a a boss and you've got a new employee, why not have a one-page document that says, here's my style, here's how I work, you know, here's what I do well, here's what employees sometimes tell me they struggle with about me, and then, you know, kind of model that as a practice where we Mm -hmm. summarize who we are, what I do well, what what might be challenging for me. So we at least have clear expectations for how we like to work up front. And that's just you know, writing one page, kind of like a bridging document, you know, or something like that. Uh, that can that can help too. Things that try to make, um, you know, expectations clearer, and be the behavioral expectations and task expectations, because the because those kind of things that you think, oh, they'll figure it out, they'll see what other people are doing, and just kind of learn by observing. That's a little bit harder um uh for folks on the spectrum so making more of that explicit and then i mentioned earlier a little bit around uh performance feedback you know not just waiting for the annual review and hoping people kind of figured out along the way you know what you know but being much more concrete and this is something organizations have started to do but then right. kind of backed off on which is uh like deloitte was noteworthy they had this big harvard business review article that said we're getting rid of the performance appraisal we're just going <laughs> to give people weekly feedback and then it's like well that's really hard we're not going to do that anymore um <laughs> so sorry I, I hope i didn't ruin any chance of them being a sponsor uh, um, yeah. you can edit it out uh, hey, I'm, a, I'm a pwc girl so there's yeah it's so funny because we talked about that topic for the better part of three years and we're not really talking about it right now. Like, no, right, right. like we haven't talked about yeah. it lately anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, just feedback that's much more grounded in the specific moment and there's kind of, you know, here's what I saw, here's the conditions under which I saw it. Here's a kind of replacement behavior I'd like to see engage it, you know, just making it much more concrete and breaking it down. So those are the things I think that employers can be doing to shift in this direction. You know, because, uh, you know, EY, uh, uh, SAP, Microsoft, they and they partnered with the University of Washington and Hala Anabi out there, who's an outstanding researcher. Um, they developed this uh, playbook, the autism playbook, right, for how they launch their programs and things like that. And it's really good. But it's good for those big employers, right? Right. Because they have infrastructure and like, how do you make the business case inside your organization? How do you get buy-in across these levels? And for you know the small to medium business, they're like the buy-in. I'm the boss. Like I make decisions, <laughs> right? Like so. So what can I do at a micro level? And that's the kind of things I'm trying to talk yeah. about here. And that's a lot of the stuff that we're working on at the at the Frist Center. So one of the things that we're doing is developing this virtual interviewing system where people come in who are on the spectrum and they engage with a, an interviewer and it was the interviewer works through a battery of questions. It has natural language processing. So it knows when you answer a question, when you finished and can respond to specific kind of things. It's really cool. And there's, there's also eye gaze tracking. So people can know where they're looking, whether we're looking away uh, because that's also something that's a big barrier in interviews for people on the spectrum is if they're not looking, people think, Oh, they're disinterested. Whereas it's, that's a stra- that's a way in which people manage the situation. If I need to concentrate on giving you a substantive answer, I can't also look at you because that takes so much of my capacity to just focus my gaze in that way. Mm-hmm. And then we also have people wearing skin conductance so we can see stress levels in response to particular questions. So we learning, uh, we're learning about what kinds of questions, and that's where I know some things about these unstructured questions, really activating big jumps in stress. So is there a way to rethink those for employers, but also for the candidates? Can they manage those circumstances? Okay, when this type of question gets asked, how can you break it down? Like, how can you give a better response? Here was your response. Here's a better response. So there's kind of an intervention component of what we're doing too. Um, You know, 
Uh, and we also build in some things like interruptions. So somebody knocks on the, the boss's door during the interview. And even in a virtual setting where it should be non-threatening, you see big spikes in people's stress wow. levels because somebody knocked on the door and the, the routine was disrupted. So then we can intervene and say, well, what do you do? The routine gets interrupted. How do you, you know, re-engage? Okay, stop, pause, collect. What was the question you were answering? How were you answering it? Think about that. Okay. And then start again, you know, yeah. just to kind of help people process through it. So we're also trying to, you know, with all these things that we're directing in employers, we're also trying to help candidates to kind of recognize that we want employers to go a certain direction, but that takes time and it takes time to diffuse. So how can candidates engage with the world as it is more successfully? Yeah, I, I, that's what I was thinking, Tim, as you were going through some of those uh, examples that you're also helping the folks who are going to go, go through these processes and have to engage with yep. some of these yep. awful questions and some of these just, yep. you know, exigencies that happen in the workplace today of, of yep. managers or hiring people or HR people who aren't really totally right. well-versed and prepared. That's just the truth of it, like for, for a while yep. anyway, right? Uh, so Absolutely. That, I, I, Absolutely. I like how you're, you're thinking about both, both sides of it. This is uh, I have one last question. I know we've been going a while and I apologize, Tim. We take up a lot of your time, but I have one no, last question, great. which it, it gets touched back on the hiring side. And it's mm-hmm. a little bit more about um, sourcing and attraction, yeah. because yeah. one of the things we hear all the time when we just have the more generic diversity and inclusion conversations that we have, and we've had a lot of them on the yeah. show is often organizations fall back on, well, I just can't find the right candidate from right. underrepresented group A or, you know, people from maybe smaller schools B. I just can't find them. They're not there. Now, we know yeah. there's lots of people on the spectrum who are there, right? That's not a, yeah. that, that's yeah. not, it's not that they don't exist, but right. I, I don't necessarily think they're flocking to, like, how do you encourage them to get involved with organizations to actually yep. apply for roles and, and help them in that regard? How do organizations maybe do a little better job on the outreach side, I guess is my, my yeah. question. Yeah. So, so I do think these autism at work yeah. summits that like SAP, Microsoft, you know, EY, these folks have been engaged in for, uh, have gotten the word out because what they will tell you is they get an overwhelming number of applications relative to the number of positions they have. And so what, the, why they're publishing things like this playbook and things like that, making it available for free download is because they know they can't serve the need themselves. So they need to try to diffuse their practice to get it out to more organizations to show it's plausible to do. And it's not overly costly and there are real business benefits to it in terms of innovation, you know, attracting and retaining talent and tough to find areas a lot of times in STEM, but other areas as well. Um, So I do think getting the word out in this kind of way has surfaced a lot more folks. And I also think this is where business can partner with kind of existing uh, state vocational rehabilitation, other kinds of agencies that do this kind of work and might be more aware of the candidate pool, but might think too narrowly because historically kind of corporate interests haven't been, you know, prominent as kind of employment places, right? Like there've been a lot of other types of organizations that have been more, uh, more acutely tuned into that. So I think building some of those kind of public private partnerships around this can be another way where, where the, the, the talent meets the employers. There are also a number of kind of intermediary organizations which have popped up, which have done some of the work, you know, you mentioned early on, I think it was you, Trisha, about, about training people on neurodiversity generally. And there are organizations like the Precisionists, which is a company that's headquartered, I believe, in, I believe in Delaware. It's on the East Coast. Uh, but they also have an, uh, uh, a site in Nashville. And what they do is they work with employers. So they, they are the ones that are charged with kind of sourcing people on the spectrum. And they do some training in their uh, centers to kind of get people up to speed, get them employment ready. And then they connect them with employers. And that while they're doing that, they're also training the employers about neurodiversity and what things they need to know, things like that, and kind of making these matches. And they have multiple sites throughout the U.S., and they're kind of building in that direction. Another organization that does a lot of that was founded in Denmark by a guy named Torkel Sana called Special Eastern. There's a Harvard business case written about them. And they... they uh, I might have been confusing them. They are the ones headquartered in Delaware. And they also, we've done some work with them, uh, we being the Frist Center, uh, with trying to move some of their training and materials kind of online to get it to a broader audience, right. uh, to, get, to get it out to the world. Because uh, they've done some really interesting things around 
selection and hiring and kind of finding candidates because those people are out there and they're out there through networks of parents who are interested in networks of disability organizations, networks of governmental agencies, all that kind of stuff. So I think there are pools there. It's just now that companies are starting to recognize the possibilities, I think it's just in making the match and then making sure the kind of infrastructure is in place. So once it happens, it's not just, hey, we made all these hires. And then six months later, we fired all these people because they didn't fit, right? right. Uh, because they didn't do any of the kind of infrastructural development. So I think those are some of the ways. So with these kind of partners, with these intermediary organizations that are emerging, I think there's there's some real possibility to get some real traction on this. Yeah, and we're good. trying to serve as a hub for that too at the Frisa. I think too, you know, if, if I'm someone listening to this episode, I would say, in addition to reaching out to them, reaching out to some of the companies we mentioned who have um, programs in place that have been working for a while, um, I am positive that they would be more than happy to share what they're doing. Like you mentioned, even, even seeking out to share that knowledge with people. Um, and I would say, too, I think if you reach out to your local high schools, your local colleges and universities, yeah, um, absolutely. So yep. it's just a matter of so kind of the, the takeaways for any any HR professional is listening is first get some neurodiversity training yourself and then do some some of your own community outreach or outreach to some of these larger organizations that are seeing success. Because right. it seems like if you start following these students, even at the high school level, maybe through the guidance counselors, you could then follow them through college or, you you know. Um, yes, and, absolutely. And bring them on even in different capacities as their as their students, as they're sort of maturing yeah. in their career um, as they go through college, if they choose that route. So lots right. of good. Lots absolutely. Of good and that's one. And that's one of the thing, one thing that I didn't mention that we're doing at the first center. We so we partner with a school in town called Curry and Graham Academy, which has this we and we developed this uh, co-developed this week long event that's building kind of job related skills for people on the spectrum who are going to be transitioning in the near future into the world of employment, right? Like, so trying to build, you know, create those kind of capacities. And so your point about getting in touch with people earlier and building those relationships earlier, uh, I think is a great suggestion. And, you know, if people want to reach out to us too, uh, at the first center, you know, we're always doing research on these topics, or if some aspect of what we're doing is of interest to you, uh, you know, let us know. We're, we, it's going to take, it's going to take a real big community to, to make a dent with this and kind of make real meaningful change happen. It can't just happen from one group. We can't do everything from the Frist Center. You know, EY can't do everything. SAP can't do everything. It's right. going to take all of us kind of together to get it done. And um, really this has been uh, a super, super great conversation. Trish, I say this often, maybe not that often. One of my favorite shows in a long time. I, I this is great, great, great stuff. If you can see, um, I literally have two full pages of notes. I have lots of notes. I'm going to have to cram everything into the show notes. But, but So this is what we want to do. So, Tim, uh, we'll put the links to the Frist Center, of course, in the show notes. It's a pretty long URL, so I'm not going to read it right now. But the, uh, if people <laughs> yeah, want to find you, connect with you, I did I did find you on Twitter. Can we give that out if yeah. we want to? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's at Owen, a capital O-W-E-N, number four, Aiden. Yeah, capital A I D A N. All right. Uh, I know it's kind of a. It's, there's a long story behind that that I won't share with you now. But, <laughs> but, it's, but uh, it's uh, yeah, that's my Twitter. Uh, you can also find me, you know, just by googling me. You know, taking yeah. my faculty webpage, and that'll give up my uh, email and all that kind of stuff. All right, we'll we'll put those links in the show notes as well. We will also link to. Um, DJ D nine nice. I think I got that right. D-N-I-C-E. His name is the TR-80-808, but you can call him D nice. Oh yep. my gosh. Steve is really not the hip hop guy. We'll link to that. No, I, I, I checked out after um uh run DMC. That was as far as, far as I went. I, like so, I love run DMC. I actually was on a plane not that long ago with Reverend Run. It was yeah, Las Vegas. Yeah, that story. There you go. 6 a.m. departure, right? Leaving Vegas to go wherever, Detroit or something, wherever I was connecting through. And Reverend Run was on the plane. I must, he must have performed the night before. And he was in the uni, which I loved. He had the, the superstars on, the black yeah. Adidas track pants, the black oh Adidas gosh. track jacket, the couple of medallions. Cool. It was awesome. I, didn't, I wasn't sitting next to him. I had gotten upgraded, too. It, I wasn't sitting next to him in first class, but I was near enough. I would have said hi to him, but I wasn't going to... 
you know, if I was right next to him, I would have. How do you pass that up? I would, if he, especially if he's dressed like, you know. He's given off a little bit of an air of it's 5 a.m. in Las Vegas. I'm not really interested in talking to anybody kind of vibe, which fair enough, which I was probably giving that off myself. But um, uh, yeah, super. And uh, atypical. And of course, and Geary Haji and uh, Sterling K. Brown's workout tapes. We'll we'll get that all in the show notes. Um, <laughs> One question though, Tim, it could be like not a long answer, but how how realistic is atypical a good show for people to kind of you know, date? Because obviously, I, I, I have I have not. I, I actually haven't seen it. I don't have Netflix. Uh, so the okay, so you're gonna have to watch. So you're right about the word on the street with the yeah. with the autism community. There was some real ambivalence about the show. Like it was good that it that it put you know autism at front and center and didn't just make it like a problem. Like, uh, but there was some in the the self advocacy community some kind of like ambivalence about the depiction yeah. in the ways you described earlier. Yeah. I think so. I don't uh, have any deep insights. So. From what I've heard, and I've not watched all the seasons yet, but what I've heard is that, and read a little bit, is that as the seasons progressed, the writers obviously took that that feedback into consideration, and then apparently, we'll see when I get to season three, have you know tried to to build in more understanding, greater understanding. So it's actually a little yep. bit educational, but it do, I think the positive things are it does show someone. What I yeah. liked about it is it 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 shows the person that is autistic is not the one with the problem, right? Yep, it's that we exactly. all have communications. It reminded me a lot of um, my grandmother passed away from Alzheimer's. And so she mm. had it for a good 10 years. And, you know, as they go through phases of, of being able to communicate and then that breaks down over time, yeah. one of the things we learned as a family was, and I would tell her this all the time, I'd say, it is not her um, inability to communicate with us. It's not her problem. It was our problem. Right. We were right. the ones to communicate differently and figure out what made her comfortable. I would say that's the same for anybody, right? It's, it's not their issue. That's just life. It's not a lifestyle. It's not a choice. It's just life. Right. So we need to embrace, how do we, you know, if someone needs ear, you know, noise canceling headphones, perfect. Let's make that happen. If they need uh, to take a moment or not look at me, perfect. Make that happen. So just to make people it's a great place. It's a great place to close this, Trish, because it really is about shifting it from seeing people with deficits to just seeing it as difference. You know, right. and so that's one of the things I think we're all trying to do around this is right, move it from deficit to difference. And yeah. I think that show, right, is trying to do exactly that. Good. It could be yeah. a good uh, little tagline for the show title too, I think. Um, all I right, like Tim that. Bogus, we've kept you far too long. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You, really Tom. great to meet My you. Pleasure. Great to talk to you. you Frist Center at Vanderbilt. Links in the show notes. Please, everybody follow, follow along, connect with Tim, learn more about this issue. We hope you do. We'll keep, uh, we'll keep on it, Tim, and uh, okay, maybe have great. you back sometime. Once, once this is all over with and we can, uh, yeah, you know, right. not worry about uh, sequestering in place or whatever. Well, the term is. Right. Right. If, if I right. take a, a trip to see the school from a bowling perspective, I'll yeah. there you go. Be a great I'm opportunity. Live in person. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. That sounds great. That's okay, uh, Trish, thank you so much. This has been a great show. Thanks to our friends, of course, WorkHuman, WorkHuman.com, and our friends at Paychex, Paychex.com. Thank you so much for the support and all the help. And uh, remember to subscribe to the HR Happy Hour wherever you get your podcast. For our guest, Tim Bogus, for Trish McFarland, my name is Steve Bose. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time, and bye for now. Thanks for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. Your source for information and conversation on work, the workplace, technology, and more. Learn more and listen to all the show archives at www.hrhappyhour.net.